Welcome. Uh, it is a wonderful opportunity for us to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. Uh, I invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. We will be meditating together, especially on verses 25 through 5, 2. Chapter 4, verse 25, all the way to 5, 2. In this way, um, I'm signaling my gentle disagreement with the chapter breaks. We've added two verses uh, to chapter 4. Let's hear God's word together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your presence that you have indeed taken away the crimson stains of our sin and guilt and made us white as snow in the sight of the Father. Lord, we praise and thank you for your goodness. And Lord Jesus, we ask in accordance with your word and your will that you would continue to transform every part of life. Lord Jesus, we pray that our mouths would be instruments of righteousness, instruments by which you bring healing and hope and edification to others. Father, we pray that you would cleanse our hearts of all bitterness, resentment, and unbelief. We pray for an inner renewal and washing that we would forgive others and love one another as you've called us to, and we pray supremely that we would love you as we ought. Lord Jesus, we ask for your blessing on this time as we meditate on your word. We pray that it would be fruitful. We pray that you would bless it and use it to transform uh, our lives so that we increasingly reflect you. And uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that if there are any in our midst who don't know you as Savior, you would be pleased to draw them through the proclamation of your word. Amen. So, if someone without an eye for interior design walks into a hideous room, uh, they might think it's basically okay. Yes, that yellow stain over there needs to be addressed. Yes, those cracks in the ceiling probably uh, shouldn't be there, but basically the room is fine. On the other hand, if you have someone with, a, uh, with an eye for interior decor and design, they walk into a room and they immediately see, oh no, the color is all wrong, we need to change that. Uh, the lighting is off. We need to change the lighting. The furniture is out of date. We've got to update the furniture. They can see everything that's wrong. Uh, and in some ways, when we consider the moral life, we're more like that first person without an eye for interior design. We think we're basically okay. Uh, yeah, I've got to work on my temper a little bit. Um, you know, I've got to patch that side of the wall over there, but basically things are fine. But when we measure ourselves by the word of God, and we see what he calls us to, 
we immediately begin to see that he has far more ambitious plans for us than we might have thought. We fall far further short of his good and holy will than we may have thought. God desires not just simply to uh, add some new paint. He wants to demolish and rebuild everything. He wants comprehensive renewal so that we reflect his perfect character in every dimension of life and every dimension of our being. So we look at this passage, we'll see that God wants us to be renewed in the way that we speak. He wants us to be renewed in the way that we work and use the fruit of our labor. He wants us to be renewed even in our feelings, our affections, our attitudes. God wants a renewal after the image of his son Jesus Christ in every dimension of life. And we'll consider especially those things this morning. Renewal of speech, of work, and of feeling, or emotions, or attitudes. Uh, Before we look at those, however, let's put this passage in context. Uh, You may recall that uh, last week we looked at the previous paragraph, and that paragraph was all about a general call for us to turn away from the old pattern of life that we exhibited before we came to know Jesus Christ, We are to put off the old lifestyle with its ignorance of God, and we are to walk increasingly in newness of life. And so this passage that we've just read shows us specifically what that looks like in those three domains, in the domains of speaking, working, um, and feeling. Uh, We should note also at the outset that these moral exhortations are not just about personal growth. Uh, A repeated emphasis in Paul's letter to the Ephesians has been the unity of the church. God wants a unified people, Jew and Gentile, brought together as one. And so these exhortations describe, yes, how we ought to grow, but how we ought to grow in order to protect the unity of the body. There's a corporate dimension to what's being said here. We need to grow in these ways that we might be the kinds of people who can protect and indeed cultivate the unity of the church. So first thing, first area we need to be renewed in is in the area of speech. Verse 25, having put, away all, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Don't deceive one another anymore. Don't distort the truth subtly to your advantage. Tell the truth, even if it disadvantages you. This is what it takes for the body to be healthy. We are members one of another. That's the language of belonging to one body, to the church. Because we are part of one spiritual organism, we owe each other the truth. And where, we, where there is lying and deception, distrust and the cooling of love follows. So one basic duty we have as we live together in community is to speak the truth to each other, to not distort the facts, to speak even when it might disadvantage us. Now, when we address the sin of lying, it's important to recognize that lying frequently happens because we want something too much. Lying is often the result of inordinate desire, often for some good thing. So for instance, it is good and right to desire the respect of your coworkers, uh, to want to be appreciated by them, to be respected by them. But it is wrong to need them to respect you and to uh, respect what you're doing at work. Uh, When there is this inordinate desire for human approval, then there's also the temptation to lie. So for instance, let's say one of your coworkers comes to you and says, hey, that project that you were supposed to be working on, uh, is it nearly completed? And as often happens, you forgot about the project. Oh yeah, I should have been working on that. Uh, Now, if you want this person to think well of you, 
you're going to be tempted to gently distort things. Yeah, no, I've been thinking about it, and uh, I've just got to put the finishing touches. It's nearly done. Uh, yeah, I'll get it to you by the, by the deadline, right? Uh, that's a lie, but it's a lie grounded in your desire to be well thought of, right? If I, if I say what is actually the case, the respect for me might diminish, and so we, we fudge gently. So if we're going to repent of lying, often we have to repent of things like inordinate desire for respect from other people. We need to repent of our lying, but we also need to repent of needing to be approved by others. We need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, change my heart. Let me fear you. Let me respect you and what your assessment of my life, not what other people think. Repentance from lying, deceitful speech, often means repenting of an underlying um, need for something. I think it's also important to note that when Paul speaks of falsehood here, and literally this would be translated in the Greek, having put away the lie, he's not just talking about lying and telling the truth in general, but has probably something a little more specific in mind. Uh, in the previous section, Paul has talked about the ignorance that characterized their life prior to their trusting in Jesus Christ. They had, there was an ignorance of God, uh, a darkness in their understanding that separated them from God. And so falsehood here, or the lie in this context, likely refers to that former ignorance. It is wrong thinking about God, distorted, darkened thinking about God that is especially in view. Once they were far from Christ, they weren't thinking rightly, biblically about God. Their thinking about God was characterized by falsehood. Uh, and they ought to put wrong thinking about God aside. And instead of that, we should speak the truth to one another in the sense that we speak the truth about who God is as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. We speak the truth of the gospel. So the church also ought to be a community where the truth about who God is is continuously spoken. We ought together to grow up in our knowledge of God as he has made himself known. We ought to be continuously correcting wrong ways of thinking about God and showing one another how we ought to think about Jesus Christ and God and applying it practically. Indeed, I think the thought comes close to what Paul says in Ephesians 4.15 when he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ. As we speak the truth of the gospel to one another, as we are a community defined by its commitment to the gospel, we are together built up as the body of Christ. So for us to be a unified, harmonious community, we need to speak truth. In the sense that we don't lie to one another, but also in the sense that we speak the truth about Jesus Christ to one another and thereby build each other up. We are a community dedicated to speaking the truth. Secondly, though, uh, in our speech, I'm organizing these topically, by the way. I'm not going to go in strict sequence. We're going to deal with these thematically. Uh, look at verse 29. And in verse 29, we're told that the kind of speaking, the kind of renewed speaking that Jesus calls us to, is speech that does not corrupt, but instead builds up. The word that's translated corrupting can be translated rotten, polluted, putrid speech, like a rotting fish or a decaying tree. And the idea, if you notice that that corrupting talk is contrasted with building up, so the idea seems to be uh, that this corrupting uh, talk defiles others, harms them spiritually, puts a stumbling block in their way. It's an amazing truth that our words can impart healing and life 
and wisdom and blessing and nudge people towards God, or our words can pollute and corrupt, tempt, harm, and kill. That's the power of language. That's the, that's the power that words have to give life or to kill. One especially poignant instance of this, at least to my mind, uh, is in Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's one of, my, one of the most moving scenes in that work. Uh, the villain Gollum decides that he is going to betray um, Sam and Frodo. As Sam and Frodo sleep, wearied from the journey, he sneaks off into the darkness to make a dark pact with a dark creature. He is going to betray them. And then as they're st still sleeping, he returns to Frodo and Sam. And what he sees causes him to stop. It arrests his attention. He sees Sam asleep with his head drooping on the side. He's propped up by a stone. And Frodo's also sleeping, but his head is resting in Sam's lap. And Sam has his hand on Frodo's forehead and his other hand on Frodo's chest. The two of them are sleeping, wearied companions. And when Gollum sees this, the sinister fire in his eyes goes out. An internal debate begins. He is struck by this image of goodness. He's seeing friendship, loyalty, goodness in front of him. A, a light from a different kind of world breaks in on his darkness. And there's a moment where he quivers between wickedness and goodness. He's not so sure anymore that he wants to betray Sam and Frodo. Then he extends his hand, trembling to reach out to Frodo. And Sam wakes up, and he misinterprets the gesture. And in a moment of impatience and irritability, Sam says, Sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain. And then we're told, the fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. Sneaking, sneaking, he hissed. There was the door of redemption was cracked open for Gollum in that moment. And Sam's irritated response shuts the door forever. It dooms Gollum. And the irony, of course, is you'd be hard-pressed to find a kinder and nobler character in the whole work than Sam. But a moment of impatient speech closes that door. Gollum is doomed. For me, that poignantly captures the power of words. A moment of irritation and the devastating consequences that ensue. James uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 and 8 tells us as much as well. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You can probably think back on your life to cutting insults, disrespectful comments, irritated speech that you can still remember those words. Words have the power to destroy, to harm, to diminish life. And Paul is saying, put aside that kind of speech that destroys others, that harms others, and put on the kind of speech that edifies. Speak only such as is good for building up that it may give grace to those who hear. The effect of our words should be to encourage others, to wisely and gently correct others, to impart wisdom to others. The effect of our speech should be that people want to draw nearer to God and grow in righteousness. 
Have you ever been around somebody who's further along in their walk with Jesus than you? And they don't even have to say much. What they do say and their comportment makes you want to love Jesus better. Makes you want to be a more righteous, holy person who knows how to control their tongue. Well, that's the effect that our words should have on people. They want to be more like Jesus. They want to be more faithful uh, because, of the, because of what we say and because of what we speak. This means that we should consider the effect of, that our words are having on people. Before we just blurt out whatever comes into our minds, we need to pause for a moment and ask, what effect is this going to have if I say it? Is this going to harm or heal? Is it going to impart death or life? I think this is especially important for those of you who pride yourself on being blunt. I say what I think. If you don't like it, deal with it. Right? Uh, and there, I, I think there is a place for candor. I think that can be helpful in certain contexts. Uh, but if you're the sort of person who just blurts out the first thing that they, uh, that they think, that's frequently not a virtue. That could be devastating to people. And so this passage is calling you to be more judicious, careful, discerning in what you say and think about the effect that your words are having on other people. Well, the people in your life, your coworkers, your wife, your husband, your children, say that your words in general build up or tear down. verse, Verse 30 gives us the motivation for pursuing this kind of righteousness in our speech. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has been imparted to believers. He stamps us in anticipation of that final day, the day of redemption, where our salvation will be complete. And so he dwells in our midst, and out of a desire to honor the Holy Spirit and please the Holy Spirit, we guard our tongue. Of course, we can displease the Holy Spirit in any number of ways, uh, through our sins, but here it is especially what we do with our mouths that has the power to displease the Holy Spirit. When we destroy others through what we say, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And so out of a desire to honor the Holy Spirit of God and revere Him and please Him, we want to be careful with our speech. What that illustrates is the fact that if we are going to speak as we ought, right speaking begins in the fear of God. Where there is a desire to honor the Lord, there will also be right speech. That's number one. We need to be renewed in our speaking. That means telling the truth. And that means using words to build others up rather than tearing them down. Secondly, uh, we are called to be renewed in the, in the way that we work and what we do with our money. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Stealing is a sin. If you are stealing, you should repent of it, taking what doesn't belong to you. And of course, we can do this in subtle ways, uh, saying that we're going to do one thing for our employer or someone else, and then we cut corners and don't do what we said that we're going to do. But here specifically, Paul has in view those who maybe sustain their lifestyle through theft, and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Hard work is a good and virtuous thing, according to Scripture. Uh, Hard work is not the result of the fall. Work is frequently exhausting, crushing, and futile because of the fall. But to be human is to be made to work. Adam was made to garden. And so it is a good and righteous thing to work hard and produce good for others. Let your your labors be a blessing to other people. 
And it is good to support yourself and not rely on other people if you are able to support yourself. 2 Thessalonians 3. He who will not work should not eat. That's the biblical ethic. There is no place for those who drain the resources of other people who are able to support themselves but choose not to. If you are an able-bodied individual and can support yourself, support yourself. But then Paul says something unexpected here. We, We might have expected him simply to say, stop stealing work hard, and meet your needs that way through, through honest work. But he takes it a step further. Not only are they supposed to work hard so they can support themselves and meet their needs, Paul goes on and says, uh, work hard so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, as you are diligent and you prosper financially, uh, you take steps forward in terms of your material prosperity, you need to start thinking about how you can share that prosperity. It's never just about me and what I want to do. It's how, how can I bless other people? And of course, that begins with God's people in the church. There's a hierarchy of priorities in Scripture. Uh, we begin with our brothers and sisters in the church. We consider the needs around us in the church. We seek to meet those needs and go out from there. But this is important because often when we make financial progress, we get a little bit of wiggle room financially. The first thought is, how can I create more enjoyments for myself? What better restaurants can I go to? What better vacations can I go on? What what greater thrills can I have as a result of this financial advancement? And if we're thinking that way, we're not thinking biblically. It's not just about what you want and how you can improve your life and pamper yourself with more luxuries. God blesses you so you can bless other people. Is that the trajectory that you're on? Is every pay increase marked by generosity and giving or just more opportunities for self? We need to be renewed in our working and then how we use our profit from our work. Finally, we need to be renewed in our feelings, our emotions, our attitudes, especially in the area of anger. That's where the emphasis falls on this passage. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. The first thing Paul's going to teach us about anger is that we need to put it away quickly. What we need to do with anger is put it away quickly. We're told, be angry and do not sin. Now, there's an interpretive issue here, and it's this. Is be angry a command? Like, do we have a moral responsibility to be angry, but then not sin when we are angry? Uh, That's possible. So we'll see, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There's times where we should be angry because certain things are happening in the world. But notice the thrust of this passage is not so much be angry, but here's how you should manage your anger when it occurs. The focus is more on here's how to keep anger from becoming destructive. And so for that reason, I agree with those commentators who view be angry in a kind of conditional sense. Be angry if you must, right? Be angry if the occasion arises, and when it arises, do not sin. It's not like, okay, you have an obligation to be angry. Maybe sometimes you do. It's more like when anger arises, Here's how you deal with it faithfully. So be angry, but in your anger, don't sin. And of course, the implication is clear that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Not all anger is inherently sinful. Jesus exhibited anger. Mark chapter 3, when he saw the stubbornness of the people around him, their hard-heartedness and their resistance to his ministry, we're told that he experienced a combination of anger and grief. Jesus didn't sin. There are things in this world that should cause us to be angry. But in our anger, we need to be careful and not sin. Because while not all anger is sinful, all anger is dangerous. 
Not all anger is sinful, but all anger is dangerous. As James reminds us in uh, James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger can be very dangerous. What do we do with it? Well, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Couples, Christian couples, are often given the advice of don't go to bed angry. Uh, you should do it because it says it in the Bible, right? And it actually applies beyond marital life. The point is, deal with your anger quickly. Don't let it fester because if it festers, things will go bad for you. Deal with the anger quickly. That's the logic of uh, don't go to bed angry. What happens when we allow anger to fester? Let's say you go out with a couple of your friends for a dinner one evening. You're sitting around, you're laughing, you're having a good time. And then one of your friends says something deeply insulting, disrespectful, and hurtful. You outwardly smile, but inwardly you burn. You laugh it off, you go home, and that smoldering resentment and anger continues. And you don't put it aside. You don't deal with it, you just let it continue burning. Well, that anger is going to be channeled in any number of ways. Depending on your temperament, uh, it may be the case that you engage, you start engaging in passive-aggressive behavior. You start not to return calls or texts. When you're with them, you pointedly withdraw affection and are intentionally cold to punish them, to make them miserable the way that the, you, they made you miserable. Or perhaps you're vindictive. You look for an opportunity to also make a joke that is actually just a way of insulting and hurting them again. Or perhaps you allow that anger to shape all of your interactions with that person. So even if they say something that's not intended to be hurtful or disrespectful, you interpret everything within the framework of your anger and everything is viewed as an attack, so eventually you blow up. Regardless of the trajectory of your festering anger, that relationship is doomed. There will be damage, massive relational damage if you don't deal with the anger in your heart. So Paul's saying, deal with it quickly. How do we do that? Where Paul takes us in verse 32 is be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. We deal with anger. When somebody slights you or wrongs you, you deal with that anger by bringing before God the hurt. The Bible doesn't say you ignore it. The Bible doesn't say, oh, it wasn't really a hurt. No, you were wronged objectively, you were wrongly disrespected, but what you need to do with that hurt and that anger is you, needed to, you need to bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, you have forgiven me again and again as I have treated you with contempt, as I have trampled on your glory and you have pardoned me. Lord, help me to pardon this person who has treated me disrespectfully. And so forgiveness is a kind of pressure release valve for the soul. All that frustration and bitterness begins to flow out of us as we bring our heartache to the Lord and in the presence of the Lord we forgive the person who has wronged us. Now sometimes in certain egregious instances we might actually need to confront the person and say, hey, the way you spoke to me was not right. That was very disrespectful and I didn't appreciate it. Sometimes that needs to happen. Most of the time come to the Lord and say, Lord, as you've forgiven me, I forgive them. And one thing that's really helpful that I've found uh, as you seek to work through those negative emotions, is actually pray for the person. Pray for their good. Pray for God's blessing on their kids, on their finances, on their life, 
on their marriage, pray for them. It's very hard to continue to be frustrated and resentful when you're praying down God's blessings on people. Pray that God would bless them in every way. And what you find is that your heart begins to soften. If you've been wronged, if you're angry, if you're frustrated, the call of God is to forgive, to let go of that frustration and anger. So one motivation to do that is we don't, you're going to destroy the relationship. But Paul actually gives us another motivation here in verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. When you don't forgive and you allow the anger to fester, you're giving Satan a foothold in your life. You're letting him be put, put in a position where he's able to tempt you more effectively. He's able to bring greater destruction to your soul and use you as an instrument of destruction in the lives of other people. Uh, when we hold on to bitterness and anger, we become tools of the devil. It's destructive to the soul. One of the things you need to consider, if you've noticed that your relationship with the Lord has cooled off, it's not as warm as it used to be. The comfort, the joy isn't what it used to be. One thing you need to consider is are you harboring resentment, bitterness, and anger towards someone in your life? Is there festering anger that you have not addressed through forgiveness? Are you allowing your heart to become cold towards someone? That's especially true, by the way, when it comes to your spouse. Is there a lack of forgiveness in your marriage? Do you feel like perhaps there aren't shouting matches in your home, but your heart is simply becoming cold towards your spouse? You're frustrated. You don't, you're going to stay together, but there's no warmth. There's no affection. You've sort of given up on the relationship. If that's where you are, it shouldn't be surprising to you that your relationship with the Lord isn't flourishing. Paul says you're giving the devil an opportunity when you do that. And P Peter reinforces that. Uh, Peter makes the observation, 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, when you're, there's conflict between you and your spouse, your prayers, your communion with the Lord is going to be hindered. You're giving the devil a foothold. So it's well worth asking, like, Lord, why is my relationship with you not going the way I would like it to go? Is there anger and bitterness in your heart towards somebody else including and especially your spouse. What do, we, what do we do with anger? We set it, set it aside quickly. We forgive. That's number one. Two, we put anger aside, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Resentment in our hearts towards other people, burning frustration, ill will or malice, all of these things need to be set aside. And in this context, I think it's worth asking the question, what are some more uh, subtle forms of anger that we commonly come across? What are some of the more subtle forms of anger that we can exhibit? Uh, obviously, yelling at someone, losing your temper, we see very clearly that that's anger. What are some, some of the more uh, subtle, covert expressions of anger? And I was helped in this regard by a little book by a guy named Edward Welch, a small book about a big problem which I hardly commend to you, by the way. Short, sweet, super helpful in the topic of anger. And he has a, as he explores different kinds of anger, he has a category of anger called cold anger. Cold anger, he describes as silent treatment, withdrawal, indifference, cold shoulder, controlling, detached, keeping score, 
criticizing. And one expression of that cold anger is indifference, which he defines this way. Indifference might be the worst form of anger. You simply do not care about the person anymore. You have judged him and sent him off into exile where he can bother you no more. And I think that as Christians, we might be uniquely susceptible towards that kind of anger. We know that yelling at someone, venting your anger is a sin before God. So we avoid it. But what do we do when someone hurts us if we don't forgive? We quietly withdraw affection. We tell ourselves, no, I don't dislike the person. I don't have any issues with that person. But they hurt me. Uh, They treated me very poorly. And yeah, we're not going to have the same warmth in the relationship. Uh, But I'm going to be respectful and civil. Uh, That's the path that a lack of forgiveness takes. Uh, That kind of indifference is a refusal to love the person. Indeed, that, that willingness to cut the person off from your life, to say, I don't, I don't want any, anything else to do with you. Uh, I'm going to withdraw my affections. I'm going to be cold toward you. I'm going to be civil, but aloof. That's a kind of murder if you think about it. You're saying, in essence, my life would be better if you didn't exist. And I'm going to treat you as though you don't exist. If our paths cross, I'll be civil, but it's a cold civility. All the warmth is gone. We need to understand that that is a sin before God. God doesn't call us to a cold, detached, emotionally disengaged civility. That's just another form of anger and bitterness. He calls us to a love that boils over with warmth and affection. We need to forgive those who wrong us and then forgive them again and then forgive them again and love them as Christ loved us. So one thing to watch out for is that kind of emotional distance, that cooling of the heart towards someone, and you allow it to happen and even justify it because you tell yourself, no, it's not anger. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter as we say that as we're being bitter. Uh, I'm not bitter. I'm just, they hurt me and we're going to go our own separate ways. That's a form of anger, a form of bitterness, a form of lovelessness. Another, another expression of, of uh, covert, subtle anger is irritability. Irritability is not so much about what you say, but like the tone, the spirit with which you say it. You, you know irritability when you hear it. There's this underlying frustration. So even though what you say might technically be right and true, you sense that the spirit is, is not right, that there's a grumbling frustration. And part of the way we, we justify irritability to ourselves is we say, well, they needed to hear that. There's a problem here. I'm just addressing it. Parents do this with kids, right? Uh, your, your child breaks something expensive of yours. And now you're going to help them. You're going to, this is not the way that we deal with things, right? It's for their good. You're correcting. But of course, you're not correcting. What you're doing is you're being vindictive, right? You're punishing them without punishing them. It's not the way you take care of things. Uh, and a child senses that. We all, we all know when someone's speaking to us out of a desire to help us or because they're taking out their frustrations on us, right? The child that knows that they're loved, when you come to them and say, hey, okay, you broke it. Let's talk about how we need to take care of things. Immediately, the child responds differently, right? Because they sense that what you're doing is not just trying to hurt them. They sense that you're trying to help them. The response is different. And irritability is one of those things that it's so pervasive in your life that you can actually stop seeing it as a sin. Speaking with frustration and irritability becomes just, that's who I am. It's a lifestyle. Understand that that irritability is a sin against God. Understand that when you speak with irritability, you have dishonored the Lord, and it's a serious thing in his sight, and you need to repent of it, not tolerate it, not excuse it. 
Another expression of a more subtle form of anger is grumbling and complaining. I told him to get here at five. He's always late, right? That kind of attitude. I can't count on this person for anything, right? Grumbling and complaining are in a spectrum with like outbursts of anger. It's a, it's a milder form perhaps in terms of its outward expression, but it's the same basic idea. I wanted this and you didn't deliver it and I'm not happy about it, right? That kind of thing. It's a form of unrighteous anger. And the source of all of this is just like lying. Wanting something too much, needing something. Inordinate desire is at the base of much anger. James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I want, I want, I want. I see what I want, I'm going after it, and if you get in my way, look out. As with lying, one of the things that we need to repent of when we repent of unrighteous anger is not just the anger and the outburst of anger, but the underlying inordinate desire. I want ease and comfort too much. I want my Saturday off. And so when someone gets in the way of my quiet time, my comfort and ease, what do I do? I blow up at them. So how do I repent of that? Well, I need to repent of the blow up, but I also need to repent of loving my ease and comfort too much. We need to hold it loosely. Say, Lord, you are better than ease and comfort. And if in your sovereign plan for my life, my Saturday gets interrupted, so be it. You are Lord, I'm not, I submit to you. We've got to hold all things, even good things, loosely. When we don't, when we have this inordinate desire, we blow up. So part of what is involved in repenting of anger is dealing not just with the surface sin, but also heart-level attachments to things, excessive desire for certain things. The root of the matter, though, this is, this is the fundamental way to deal with anger, and we've alluded to it already, is verse 32. Instead of anger and malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If we want to not be controlled by anger, we need to be forgiving people constantly, again and again and again. And we do that as, as we look to the forgiveness that we have received. When it's hard to forgive others, remember how you have been forgiven. Remember how much God has forgiven you of. Think about all of the accumulated guilt over years and years. All the harsh words that you have spoken. All of the ways in which your anger has harmed other people. All of the accumulated guilt and wickedness of a lifetime, God has graciously pardoned. Can you not pardon your brother and sister in light of that? So we see how great is the forgiveness of God, but we also see the costliness of God's forgiveness. God didn't just take our sins and, and then swipe them under the rug. There was a high price to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins, and it was the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus. Look at his beautiful character. Look at the way he spoke all the days of his life. Everything that came out of his mouth was wise and good and life-giving and right. And then that perfect life of the Son of God was offered in our place at the cross. That sinless, spotless life was given for ours. He took upon himself the judgment of God that we deserve, that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. It cost Jesus everything for us to be forgiven. So when you're tempted to hold on to that bitterness and anger, that's where you go. 
Remember how much God has forgiven you. And remember the costliness of that forgiveness. When you see that, when you see that that's what Jesus has done for you, your heart is going to be softened. And it's going to be, I don't want to say easy, but much easier to let go of the resentment and bitterness towards others. Paul then goes on and makes explicit in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, what is implicit in verse 32. It says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And the underlying principle is that we ought to be imitators of God. We ought to reflect his character. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, God's will for us as his children is that we would reflect his character. See in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, if I'm not mistaken. Be holy as I am holy. Be forgiven in this context, be forgiving in this context as I am forgiving. And then in verse 2, Paul goes on explains and explains what it means to imitate God. To imitate God means to imitate Christ and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering in sacrifice to God. Jesus came into the world and in love for us, freely yielded his life for us. He said, Father, the, the cup of judgment that they deserve to drink, give that cup to me and I will drink it to the last drop. Jesus freely gave his life for us when we were his enemies. And that's the pattern for us in the way we treat our brothers and sisters. We lay down our lives for others and in so doing we imitate the character of God. The sum of the matter, the foundation for harmonious living in community, free of anger and full of kindness, is that we love one another as Christ loved us. We don't insist upon our rights, we defer to others. If I see my brother and sister struggling, I, I lay aside my ease and comfort and I come alongside of them and suffer with them. I help them carry their burden. And in the context of this passage, this love supremely means that we forgive and forgive and forgive. When we are wronged again and again, we forgive and we forgive again, just as we have been forgiven. That's the kind of love that we're called to. We're called to go beyond, as I said earlier, a cold civility where we tolerate each other, and there are no conspicuous outbursts of anger, but there's an underlying frustration and coldness. That's not love. Christ calls us to be warm, boiling over, and affectionate towards one another. And we do that as we consistently look to our Lord and Savior. So the call of God in this passage is to press on to maturity in every aspect of life. In our speaking, in our working, in our use of money, and even in our emotional life. And that's not, that's not just going to happen. We're going to wake up one day and we find ourselves mature in these areas. Paul is saying that these, things, these are things we need to strive for. There needs to be intentionality in pursuit of righteousness in these areas. And as we look to Jesus Christ, we are called to grow up in these areas. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We thank you for the mercies that you've shown to us. We pray that your forgiveness would, would take a hold of our hearts and soften them so that we find it comparatively easy to forgive others. Lord, teach us to speak as you would have us speak. Teach us to be kind as you would have us be kind and uh, diligent, Lord, in all the responsibilities that you've given to us. Amen.